Once a week, the uh, teachers in my childhood school got together and chose two kids out of the whole grade for a very special honor. The two chosen were allowed to go out back and pound the chalk out of every eraser in the building. It was the biggest honor you can imagine. I'm being totally serious. It instantly marked you as a very good kid, someone trustworthy, someone other people could rely on. If you were known as a goofball or a troublemaker, you never got chosen for a racer duty. Mean Brian, by the way, it's the only name I ever knew him by, Mean Brian never got chosen, all right? But these people were chosen. Kevin, a guy we all trusted who later became a respected brain surgeon. Becca was selected, wonderful girl. She's now a leader in our nation's Drug Enforcement Administration. Sam, one of my oldest friends, he got chosen. Funny guy, delightful man, became a wonderful husband and father. Lisa was, was chosen. Everybody trusted her. They still do to this day in her church, her family, and her medical practice. Wonderful people. Being picked for eraser duty was recognition that this kid was already serving, already leading among the great. It also was much less glamorous back behind the building where the erasers were being pounded because billowing clouds of chalk dust soon coated those who were chosen for eraser duty. Any of you ever beat out erasers? You've done it? Okay, you know of what I speak. That combination, a great honor that shows leadership but is rough on your health, that makes me think of serving as an elder in a local church. And Paul addresses this next in our study of Titus. Open there in your Bible, if you would, please. Right after the Timothy letters... Uh, before uh, Philemon and Hebrews, you've got Titus. Go to chapter 1, and let's learn about elders, verses 5 through 9 of Titus chapter 1. The reason I left you in Crete, Paul says to Titus, was to set right what was left undone, and, as I directed you, to appoint elders in every town, one who is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of wildness or rebellion. For an overseer, as God's administrator, must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not addicted to wine, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught so that he'll be able both to encourage with sound teaching and refute those who contradict it. Your notes walk us through the character points that are listed here. Open your bulletin you got when you came in. You'll see on the left-hand side, elders must be above reproach. The most critical thing the only thing mentioned twice here is for God's leaders to be above reproach. <clears throat> the elders needed in every church, not only on Crete, but in all places and all times, is summarized by this one phrase, above all else. They must be above reproach. That does not mean perfection, which is impossible this side of heaven. That's why I rather dislike the translation blameless in my Bible. Uh, an enkletos doesn't mean innocent perfection. It, it means someone against whom no charge can be sustained. As the United States Vice President said in a recent speech, he said it very well. He said, to lead best, I must be above reproach. Thus, elders are not perfect, but rather they don't give the Lord's enemies fodder to use against them. That's the big idea. If you grasp nothing else about biblical servant leadership, please get this first main idea. To lead best, a person must be above reproach. And before we go any further, let's let that convict our hearts for a moment. Think about your taxes, your finances, your expense accounts. Uh, are you above reproach in all those? What, what about your business dealings, your treatment of other people? Are you an enkletos? We could certainly keep going. There are a number of life avenues where above reproach plays out, and Paul will walk us through many of them. But the text first concentrates on the area where every person is most open to attack, their sexuality. God declares it to be above reproach, an elder must be the man of one woman. 
Here's the Greek. It says an elder must be honor mias gunaikos. That means, that means a man, or it could be husband. The andros root is used to both man and husband, although man is far more common translation. He must be the man or husband of one woman. It could be wife. The gine root is used to both woman and wife, although woman is by far the most common. So, the text can be faithfully brought into English as one of four ways. There are four possibilities of how to translate this. Number one, a one-woman man. Number two, a one-wife husband. Number three, a one-woman husband. And number four, a one-wife man. By the way, the, the same words appear in the first letter to Timothy, the parallel passage describing elders. There he just reverses the word order. He says they must be mias gunaikos andros. In both Timothy and Titus, the problem comes in deciding which of these four options is most in line with the contextual grammar, history, culture, literature. What does honor mias gunaikos mean, and how should we apply it in our churches today? Throughout church history, I need to give you a little history here so you can understand. Throughout church history, there have been four ways to understand and apply honor mias gunaikos, and they line up with the, the four renderings. So the first one is an elder must be married. Uh, unmarried men disqualified for eldership. The second, an elder must have only one wife. Polygamous men uh, are disqualified because that's not a one-wife husband. By the way, even though people will talk about this in the classical world, I cannot find a single instance, not one, of a church in the classical world in the first few centuries ever using that argument and saying that's what they think the text meant. They didn't. They, they didn't lean toward that one at all. I have taught at churches in Africa where they interpret it this way because polygamy is more widespread and they see that as important. Uh, the third option, an elder cannot be divorced. Divorced men, even if they're remarried, uh, are disqualified because that's not a one-woman husband. And an elder cannot be a widower is the fourth option. Even remarried widowers are disqualified. Sadly, these are all likely missing the point. I'm not disrespecting our forefathers who came up with these, but I must speak to their errors. Look, theology is a lot like medicine, okay? When you're in doubt, the simplest, most common answer is almost always best. Let's say you take your kid to the doctor, okay? And your child has a fever and achy muscles. Now, your doctor knows that that could be very early onset bubonic plague, or it could be the virus that everybody else has right now, okay? Which one does your wise doctor go with at least to start? Which one? The, the, the virus, right? Okay, Let, let's be good doctors of theology. It only takes a very little research to learn that the most common way these Greek words were understood was option one, a one-woman kind of man. This is a character issue. It is not just a checklist. An elder needs to be the kind of man who is committed to monogamy. He is not a free radical. Sadly, over time, you know what churches did? They attached this idea of being married onto it and and, and that's particularly unfortunate because marriage, while exalted in Scripture, is almost certainly not part of God's intention in this passage. Take a deep breath, and let me show you how we know. Paul uses the word presbuteros in this sentence, okay? He uses other words for elders as well, but the immediate context is presbuteros. That word choice makes all the difference. Look, presbuteros is an old, very important word, well known on the island of Crete, the original place this epistle was sent. In fact, Crete is almost certainly the place where that word was first invented because that's where Greek civilization began. And presbuteros is a very, very, very old word coming out of the old myths of Greek thought in ancient times. Presbuteros was used of Greek councils, a city council, of college presidents, and of some kinds of judges. 
And in Greek usage, get this, there is no marriage requirement for a presbyteros. None. And by the way, the only age requirement was he had to be at least 30 years old. What mattered was the character of the potential presbyteros. By the way, most of them in the Greek world only served for one year at a time, so they could be continually reevaluated before they were put back on the board. In some places, presbyteros were voted in by the people, and others the board was self-perpetuating. Now, the same word, exact same word, is used at the same time in Israel and Egypt when they were translating the Old Testament into Greek. And there, presbyteros was used of a village elder who made judicial decisions in the town gate and helped set the, <clears throat> the spiritual and economic tone of his village. In these Jewish societies, listen, there was also no marriage requirement, none. <clears throat> the only age stipulation in the Hebrew village was a presbyteros had to retire at 70. Was forced retirement at 70. Don't even know why. Unlike the Greeks, Jewish presbyteros served continually. They didn't have just terms. They just served continually, although there were sometimes some rotations, what we would call rotations off the board. The elders always elected the other elders in Israel. There was no voting. Crete has a lot of Jews. It's also the oldest Greco civilization in the world. Paul uses presbyteros on purpose here, so we'll know what he means. He means a one-woman man is given responsibility according to his character. This would have been the obvious understanding in each subculture. Presbyteros is to be above reproach because he is the kind of guy that has a heart for monogamous love with one lady. He is a one-woman kind of person. At Dallas Seminary, there's a building named for Harold Honer, uh, one of the finest Greek scholars of our era. He also was very, very kind to me. He was a great encouragement to me, taught me. Years ago, Dr. Honer wrote me about his summary of what mias gunaikos andros means. Look at this. This is what he wrote. He said, Wayne, the issue is of the heart, as you know. When a man doesn't every day take captive his roaming eye, which every man has in our sinful flesh, he is disqualified from consideration for eldership. It's not that he won't struggle. It's that in life's struggles, he allows the Holy Spirit to build in him the same heart for the one man, one woman relationship that God exalts in Scripture. Close quote. That's, my friends, a much higher bar than merely whether one is or has been married, right? Much higher bar. So how do you measure up? Are you, are you clearing that bar? Listen, if you're married, is your heart devoted to your spouse or do you fantasize about or flirt with others? If you're not married... Do you exalt God's clear ideal of one man, one woman marriage, or do you incorporate various popular sins into your thinking? Lord, please grow us into people who are above reproach in our sexuality. All God's people said? Second great area of being above reproach is having faithful children. Now, look up here at the slide where I've arranged the text so you can see this. Paul sets off this first section in a literary device. It's called an inclusio. That's your fancy Latin word for the day, boys and girls. You get to say it. On the count of three, inclusio. One, two, three, inclusio. There are many issues that are listed in our text, but look at this. There are two that are set apart and put inside the repetition of blameless and the terms for elders. Do you see that? They're inclusioed inside there. The first was the potential elder's attitude toward his sexuality. We just discussed. The second concerns any children he might have fathered. You all know the truth. The most humbling thing in the world is to watch your kids grow up and become just like you. Right? And it can be humbling in both encouraging and corrective ways. 
And we must understand that full adult children are the idea in this passage. Please notice, God, God inspires a term here that is only ever used for fully grown-up offspring. Gene Getz summarized as well. Paul was not referring to small children or even older children in their teens. Now, there are three specific things to look for in these adult children of potential elders. First is being faithful children. A minute ago, I picked on my HCSB translation. Now I want to brag on it. This Holman Bible, along with the old King James, are just about the only translations that get this right. The other renderings call these offspring believers in Jesus, which doesn't seem to fit well at all. The Bible never holds anyone responsible for another person's faith. You know what the Bible says over and over and over. Each one will stand before God individually. Remember, the presbyteros context is still in mind here. One thing that cut across every culture was the idea that grown children take care of their elders, take care of their parents especially. In fact, when the ancient poet Homer writes about um, a, a, a bunch of grown kids faithfully caring for their father in the Iliad, he uses the term presbyteros of the father on purpose, even though the guy in the story never, ever, ever served as an elder. It's such an important thing to take care of your parents. Homer purposely uses presbyteros. Thus, the Titus text almost certainly means adult kids who are faithful to their parents. Second term is wildness. An elder should teach his kids to grow up. Wildness isn't part of a healthy adult life. And grown kids should not be open to a charge of wildness, whether they're believers in Christ or not. First Peter chapter 4, verse 3 puts it this way. For there's already been enough time spent in doing what the pagans choose to do, carrying on an unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, lawless idolatry. Peter says to all Christians, it's time to grow up, wild child. Paul is discussing people who may or may not be believers in Jesus, but they certainly have grown up, and they are not a wild embarrassment to their parents. The final term is rebellion. Now, this, this seems tied to the Old Testament idea of rebellion. Do you know in the Old Testament, rebellion is always, uh, it's always depicted with a raised fist, a, a closed, shaking fist is rebellion in the Old Testament. The, the elders have taught, the potential elder, somebody you want to consider, has taught their family not to be rebels. That doesn't mean that these grown kids don't stand up for right, that they don't denounce wrong. It means they're not anarchists. They don't insubordinate as a way of life. In summary, the leader God wants to set aside for his service leads his home effectively. Now, look at your inclusio again. I'm really intrigued by the pause for breath, the, the reset here. The inclusio places these two things as especially tied to blameless or above reproach. This is the base issue for a church elder. He must be an above reproach, one-woman man who leads his household well. And such has been my experience. I have seen elders removed. I've had to fire pastors. I have even sent missionaries packing. And in every case, in every case, the ones who were removed were not living as above reproach one woman kinds of men. Every case. And that lack of integrity in their core identity of two becoming one, it flowed over into their family, those who had families. Their, their wives and kids were always seriously wrecked. That's not to say God doesn't heal. Of course he does. He forgives and blesses those and, and uses those who are wounded by another's sin just as he brings those in sin to repentance and healing. But somebody dealing with all of that doesn't have the bandwidth to take on the eraser-pounding mess of serving as an active elder. Speaking of pounding erasers, I remember the first time I got chosen to pound erasers at my elementary school. It was the day I wore my new dark blue shirt to, church, to, to school. You think my mom was excited when I got home? That extra work 
that that made for her is a little bit like the extra endurances are required for the families of elders. Therefore, they need to be strong. Quickly, let's look to the right side of our page. Note what else God has to teach us. Overseers are God's administrators. That's the point in verses 7 and 8. This is so cool. Two new words are used here in verse 7 to help us understand what elders do. We need to understand a little of their function so we can grasp what kind of person to look for in this role. Episcopos is another word for elders that was used very widely, uh, pretty much only in the Greco-Roman world. It, it was a combination of two words, the word for over and a word for seeing. The elder is to be an overseer. He must grasp the biggest picture and oversee the whole church. This is why many wonderful servant leaders who are great in church ministry make terrible elders. They do, because they love the church, they love the ministry, and they keep getting sucked back to the ground level. They keep getting involved in the detail of the work. They, they get excited about all the fun part of ministry. All the while, God's church needs them to step back and be the people that are set aside to oversee and keep the, big, the only people who are to keep the biggest of pictures in mind. The second word, oikonomon, uh, signifies, a it's like it's our word economy comes from it. It, it, it signifies a steward. This is someone who serves an economy that he does not fully control or own, all right? He administrates. By the way, that's why your English forefathers were brilliant when they chose the exact same root word for ministry as for administrate. It's, it's, it's the same thing. We're all stewards. Titus is to set up elders in every place who see themselves as administrators, stewards of God's church. They're the primary leaders, but they only serve as under shepherds of something that is owned by the Lord. Now, I imagine at this point your thinking is running something like this. Pastor Wayne can't say that stuff he always says about thank goodness we're not like that because this is clearly for elders only. I'm not an elder and I'm never going to be. Right? Thank you so much for sharing. Um, guess what, dear ones? These character traits actually do apply to all of us. This is for all of us. Multiple other passages in the Bible tell us that every believer in Jesus is a steward of God's gifts. Thus, we all need to see ourselves as God's administrative staff. When I myself became a school teacher, I was very struck by this brilliant statement from the wonderful 20th century educator Mortimer Adler. He said, the best education for the best is the best education for all. Close quote. And I found that to be completely true. I, I instructed inner city dropouts who were coming back to get their GED, and I taught very highly motivated private school kids. And in each case, I found that the best for the best is the best for all. In the same way, the best character to develop for elders is exactly the best character to develop in all. Don't try to duck this conviction because you aren't a local church elder. This is for you, steward of God, since every Christian is part of God's royal priesthood. Amen? With that in mind, we're going to rapidly go through what Paul covers next. Elders, by proxy all of us, are not to be arrogant. When we're prideful, we lose the capacity to think critically, always. Churches, businesses, schools, and governments throughout the ages have been led into folly because of arrogant leaders. However, do you know this? It's got to be noted that many people are tempted to think and act arrogantly because, let's be honest, in the short term, it seems to build momentum. The sick reality is arrogance can often attract people to a leader. A friend and I were discussing this, and I used Disney's Gaston from Beauty and the Beast as an example of arrogance that, that attracted people to a leader. In reply, she wrote me a great response. Look what she said. Gaston looks so good as long as he doesn't open his mouth or act. 
These are not the men that should be leading us. Neither do we need beasts leading us, unless it's the reformed variety. Bell's dad mightn't be too bad if he was not sickly and could relate to people. Actually, that whole village was pretty messed up. Perhaps the horse would make the best elder. <laughs> no arrogance. God's stewards also must not be hot-tempered. This was one of my personal failings. Um, the, the problems for Christians with short fuses. Here's what happens with Christians who have short fuses. They tend to get angry about appropriate things. And, and then what we do is we excuse our quick temper by hiding behind the righteousness of our indignation. This is a ridiculous excuse because Scripture tells us to be angry but not to sin in that anger. And our hot-headed outbursts are sin. And they actually, they take away from the righteousness of our causes. I have been blessed to grow a great deal in this area, and I will testify that you can as well. In fact, one of our elders years ago set out to help me grow in this, and I hope you do the same for each other. We also should not be addicted to wine. All addictions are idolatry. All addictions are idolatry, and drink has always been the most popular and culturally accepted form of idolatry. I beg your patience, but I'm not going to say any more about that today. We will go in depth into that in Titus chapter 2. Who do you want to be? If I want to serve God according to the best plan for the best, I must not be a bully. Actually, in our notes, I put bully slash pugnacious slash violent because it's hard to tell the exact emphasis of the Greek term used here. There is an important balance here. Please don't overreact to this statement. When I was in seminary, uh, I had a number of pastors and really wise elders tell me, Wayne, when you're leading a church someday, if you don't get into some pretty hot arguments during your elders' meetings, then you either aren't really talking about things that matter or your elders don't care, right? But arguing is different from being a bully. Plankton, the Greek word, means a cruel and brutal person. Think plankton in SpongeBob, okay? Plankton is a cruel and brutal person who, depending on the context, is a bully or pugnacious or, or even violent. An elder who is strong-willed and opinionated, that's fine. One who bullies others is not. Finally, we must not be avaricious, uh, not greedy for money. You do know the problem isn't money. The problem's the greed part. That's why Jesus didn't say money's the root of sin. He said the love of money is the root of all kinds of sin. Ambition can be healthy. Avarice, ambition for monetary gain, never, never is. Now, you're going to hate this, but you need to hear it. Avarice is rampant in our thinking today. It is so rampant in Christians' thinking that they don't even know it's there. Let me just illustrate. Somebody is considering a new position, a new job, a new opportunity. What is the very first thing that they check out about that opportunity? What is it? the salary. That's avarice. That's, I'm not trying to be cruel, that's ridiculous. Pay is important. Pay is important. The laborer is worth his wages. Yes, that's biblical. However, if that's your primary factor, you've got your ladder of success leaning against the wrong wall. You are blinded by avarice. The Christian servant leader wants to know where he or she can be servant of God and fulfill God's purposes in their career and their family and their church and their community. I would read to you the sad letters, many sad letters I've gotten over the years from people who took a job for bigger money and then regretted that move deeply, but I don't want to make you cry. Remember, this is dealing with character. It's not a legal checklist. The bar is actually much higher than mere behavior. For, for example, let, let's just look at one thing from our list. Uh, look at arrogance, all right? Every single human being, everyone struggles with arrogance at times, whether that arrogance is expressed as, as pride or insecurity, which are just two sides of the same problem. And that arrogance means you're living with a mask on, okay? 
If you choose leaders based on a person who has never been arrogantly prideful or arrogantly insecure, you would have absolutely no elders. It's not possible. But you can discern whether a person has an arrogant character. Does he give in to that arrogance? Does he fight it in the Holy Spirit? Is his character in resistance to these negative traits, fighting to take off the mask? If so, that's what we're looking for. Same can be said of the positive traits that come next. No mere human will be all of these all the time, but we need to develop a character that strongly reflects these as our norm. Elders, by proxy all of us, are to be hospitable. That means we are welcoming, we are loving to people. No one's ever said it better than Rex Stout, the great old mystery writer of the 20th century, his huge hero, Nero Wolf, the crime-solving genius. He says this a number of times in Rex Stout's books, a guest is a jewel resting on the cushion of hospitality. Isn't that great? A guest is a jewel resting on the cushion of hospitality. We're also intended to be lovers of what is good. Hey, here's one great way to check on whether or not you're loving what's good. Ask yourself this. About what do I think most of the time? What do I think about most of the time? We tend to dwell on what we love, right? That, that's why a dating teenager keeps writing his girlfriend's name all over his physics textbook, right? He can't think about physics. He's thinking about what he loves. Um, so do a quick inventory of your thinking right now, just quickly. Is my thinking mainly concerned with good? If so, then I'm likely loving what is good. If not, then I'm probably not and I need to adjust my thinking. Read with me the conclusion of Paul's discussion about this. Paul talked about this with the Philippians, and he wrapped up the whole discussion with that church this way. Philippians 4, 8, you read the underlined text with me. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Thank you. We should also be sensible. Loving good, thinking on good, we should also be sensible. This sober-minded common sense is a big deal in Scripture. Sadly, it is far from a big deal in modern churches, and that needs to change. However, I beg your forbearance because we're going to set that aside for today because we have a big discussion of sensibility coming up later in Titus. We should be hospitable, lovers of good, sensible, and just. This is one of the most oft-repeated themes in the Bible. God's people should be fair. They should be just. We must do what is right. There are literally thousands of examples of ways we don't live up to this. Let me just choose one as an illustration, just one. Here's just one little illustration. Christians roll through stop signs. Now, I know that's just a tiny little thing. But if you can't be just regarding an issue that small, how can God expect to trust you with important things like the care of His eternal church? Holy comes next. We are to be about the process of partnering with God's Holy Spirit who changes us from the inside out. He transforms us as we yield to Him and work with Him, sanctifying us, making us ever more holy. And one of the ways He makes us holy is through self-control, the last item on our list. If you don't know this, um, self-control in the New Testament always means really Holy Spirit controlled. We need to learn to yield ourselves every day to God who builds in us temperance and discipline and self-control, okay? Now, I told you there's a parallel list in, in 1 Timothy. Let's look real quickly at what we read in Titus and how it lines up with 1 Timothy. Here are the character qualities that appear in both of these texts about elders. 
above reproach, blameless, one woman man leads household uh, or faithful offspring. Same idea. They both contain not addicted, not pugnacious, not greedy, hospitable, self-controlled, slash sensible. Meanwhile, these traits are delineated only in 1 Timothy, respectable, able to teach, gentle, not quarrelsome, not a new convert, good reputation with outsiders. And these appear only in Titus, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, loving what is good, righteous, holy, holding to the faithful message, verse 9. Now, those actually are very, very parallel, but I need to get into this because there is a modern popular argument that you should know. A modern popular argument says that since these two lists differ slightly, God is indicating a relativity to each and every setting. In other words, say some people today, the requirements for elders will be different in every church of every age, and those requirements should be set according to the current culture of that place and time. Here's probably the biggest problem with that line of thought. Each of the lists we have is defining a character that doesn't change. Both of them tell us it is above reproach, one woman man who leads his household well. If you want to pretend that these are completely relative, then you can do whatever you want to that list. You can look up at the little points of light and make up your own constellations that that are whatever you want them to look like. You can change Scripture according to whatever a current culture desires. You can do what we do, read your desires back into the text along with carefully edited history, and you can call it a trajectory. But that, friends, is a slippery slope of arrogance. And in American churches today, there is a lot of resistance to this Scripture. But notice this. Only the masculine part gets attacked. It's fascinating. You see, there's an exactly same statement made later in Titus. Paul commands another another sexually limited situation. He says, only more mature ladies are to mentor younger women. The context is one-on-one. I'm still waiting for the day when one of our dear sister churches announces that they see a historical trajectory that makes that limitation oppressive. I love our sister churches. I am not meaning to throw rocks, but it is telling that they never stand up and call for older men to to disciple younger women in a one-on-one context. They only want to change the one-woman man elder part. That's disingenuous. If you're going to do it one way, you've got to do it all of them. Now, that's not to say there aren't various emphases according to the times and needs of different places. There are variations in this list because they represent slightly different ways of capturing the character of an above reproach, one-woman man who leads his household well. We've noticed this ourselves at Frisco Bible. The different traits have made for good elders in each of the different churches we've planted. When we planted Grace Bible Church in Lavernia, Texas, outside San Antonio in the country, we found that elders who had a background in agriculture were much more respected and did better in that congregation. Exact opposite thing in Bologna, Italy, when we planted the church there. There, it was really helpful to have an elder who had a background in international business because what everyone in the church was doing. But none of those different emphases changes the bottom line for the presbyteros episcopos. He needs to have character commensurate with an above reproach, one woman man who leads his household well. And God's leaders hold to that truth, which is the point in verse 9. Read verse 9 again. Holding to the faithful message as taught so that he'll be able both to encourage with sound teaching and refute those who contradict it. This idea actually flows into our next section. We're going to address it when we gather next time. For now, I just want us to note the big ideas in, in, that, in that verse. Three big ideas. Number one, the best leaders work at grasping God's Word. 
They study it. They absorb it. The best education for the best is the best education for all. We must all be committed students of Scripture, memorizing and learning from it so, so we can hold on to it as it holds on to us. Our neighbor Chuck Swindoll had this to say about memorizing Scripture. This is great. He said, no other single exercise pays greater spiritual dividends. Your prayer life will be strengthened. Your witnessing will be sharper and much more effective. Your attitudes and outlook will begin to change. Your mind will become alert and observant. Your confidence and assurance will be enhanced. Your faith will be solidified when you memorize Scripture. And notice that this isn't merely for ourselves. Elders grasp God's Word in order to encourage the brethren. Do you see that? Think, think of some skill that you've learned in your life, okay? I bet you learned that skill while watching someone else do it well, right? You learned that skill while watching someone else. You, you studied them, you, you emulated how they did it, and then as you kept doing it, you developed your own style, your own technique that you built off of that. One of the main encouragements that helped you gain proficiency was seeing someone else do it well. This is why a church is blessed when it has multiple elders, there are multiple people to watch and learn from as they grasp and live out God's Word. When I sent my Titus notes for this series out to our pulpit team, I received this great comment back. Look at this great comment. One of the members wrote me and said, Wayne, this may be a good time to remind the congregation how awesome Frisco Bible Church is. We as a church follow these biblical mandates even in the face of popular currents promoting things like yes-men eldership, female... By the way, sometimes I would like that, but that's sinful. So, um, yeah, they, they are not yes men. I'm not even in charge of the board. Um, they're anything but that. Yes men eldership, female eldership, no eldership is popular these days. Sin redefining eldership or all-powerful single bishop eldership. We should acknowledge our elders here and show gratitude for the sacrifices they make for us. Close quote. I agree. In fact, I would like the elders in this service to please stand. Whether you're serving on the current board or you have served in the past, would you stand up please right now? If you're an elder in this service, stand up. Everybody look around at these guys and let's applaud those who have served and are serving as our elders. You may be seated. These poor guys who are covered with chalk dust back behind the school are encouraging us. They're encouraging us in the way they grasp and live out God's word as overseers of the church of Jesus. And the text closes by telling us elders also grasp God's word in order to refute the contradictors. And that sets up what we'll study next time, which are the false teachers. For today, let's just review what we've learned. Okay, elders, by proxy all of us, are not to be arrogant, hot-tempered, addicted to wine, bullying, pugnacious, violent, or avaricious. Elders, and by proxy all of us, are to be hospitable, lovers of what is good, sensible, just and self-controlled, and we should always grow in grasping God's Word, both in order to encourage the brethren and to refute the contradictors. Let's, let's pray that for ourselves right now. Pray with me. Let's pray. Father, on my behalf and on the behalf of my incredible brothers and sisters, and of all of our wonderful friends who are believers all around the world, I, I want to ask this, that your Holy Spirit would provoke in us a great change in, in us and around the world, Lord, we pray for a diminishment of arrogance and hot temper and addiction, which is horribly spreading like wildfire, especially in our country. Pugnaciousness, avariciousness, which is endemic, unfortunately, in how we think. Lord, please inspire us 
that we don't forget this, that when we're, when we're at lunch, that when we're watching the Rangers this afternoon, when we're, when we're disciplining our kids, when we're helping with homework, when we're taking a nap, we are working with your Holy Spirit to develop plans and disciplines for how we're going to change in these ways. And help us change as well to be hospitable and love what is good and be sensible and just and self-controlled, grasping God's word so we can encourage each other and refute that which is wrong. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. All God's people said, amen.